Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Michael Nevradakis. Uh, Michael is a journalist and a researcher with a PhD in media studies and a master's in public policy and a bachelor's also in political sciences if I'm not mistaken. He was also himself a radio host, a podcast host as well, and as well as that, a lecturer at the University of Texas, New York College, and the American College of Greece. Uh, Michael, look, that's a quick 20, 30 second intro into who you are. Thank you for being here with us. Um, could you maybe take a couple minutes, introduce yourself to the audience, and then we're just going to dive on into uh, everyone's favorite party guest, Klaus Schwab in the World Economic Forum. Well, sure. Thanks for having me, first of all. Uh, you summarized a lot in 20 seconds. Uh, what I primarily do nowadays is uh, I write for The Defender, which is an online publication that is published by Children's Health Defense. Uh, Children's Health Defense is an organization uh, based in the U.S., but they operate in Europe as well and other parts of the world. They just launched in Africa last week. And they were founded by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it's that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. So uh, this is an organization that a lot of people are familiar with for its work in advocating for um, getting um, the truth out about vaccines and their safety and especially their safety for children, hence the name Children's Health Defense. Uh, but the writing that I do uh, for the Defender goes beyond just strictly uh, about topics like vaccines, COVID, and, and so forth. Uh, a lot of the writing that I've done in the last few months, ever since I started there in October, uh, has to do with big tech, technocracy, uh, those sorts of topics as well, uh, in addition to big pharma, big food, big agriculture. Uh, so uh, I've written a lot about the World Economic Forum, which I know we'll be discussing today, about um uh, large funds like BlackRock and Vanguard, which maybe we'll touch on them as well. Uh, so that's a type, the type of writing that I generally do for uh, the Defender to give another quick example. About a week ago, I had an article about Amazon and its push uh, to enter the uh, healthcare booth. Uh, so a lot of what I write is not really directly related to vaccines and, and COVID, even though I've written quite a bit about that as well. Uh, but it really goes into what these very big players are doing. So I've been writing for The Defender since uh, October. I used to have a podcast for 10 years uh, called Dialogos, which is the Greek word for dialogue. And I just got back into broadcasting actually a day ago. Uh, uh, we're recording this on, uh, on a Friday. Uh, yesterday, I, I, I launched a, it's not my program, but I joined the rotation of hosts on a uh, online TV program that's run by Children's Health Defense called Good Morning CHD Children's Health Defense. Uh, so I'll be doing that once a month with interviews uh, on a whole variety of topics. So I just got back very recently into a form of uh, broadcasting as well. Awesome. I'm uh, looking forward to to checking that out. It's uh, through uh, Children's Health Defense uh, and the Defender that I got familiar with your work, uh, actually. Um, but there's um, a lot of big that you mentioned there, big pharma, big food, big tech, etc., etc. And all of this does sort of fall under that remit of BlackRock and Vanguard. Um, but there's another key player there as well, um, sort of a, 
our mainstay for today, the World Economic Forum. Can you maybe give um, a sort of outline as to how the World Economic Forum plays a role uh, with these people? As for people that aren't familiar, it sounds like this outside organization and we're almost talking uh, some airy fairy magical control that they have over all these different um systems or all, all this different infrastructure that affects all of our lives um but actually it goes a bit deeper than that and the world economic forum have their fingers in many pies so could you maybe outline a little bit of that for us of course and uh, this will sound <laughs> probably a little bit hilarious but one way in which i sort of think about the world economic forum and what they are and how they operate is almost like your local chamber of commerce on lots and lots and lots of steroids. They're almost like the global chamber of commerce uh, and then some. And the reason I use that analogy is because at the heart of it, the way that they seem to operate is almost as um, a business roundtable where you have the CEOs and executives and high level people from major multinational corporations in particular, and not all of them are necessarily well known, but they're very important in their respective fields. Uh, that's certainly something that they all have in common. They get together, for instance, in Davos in Switzerland for their little um, for their little gatherings once or twice a year. And uh, they seem to talk about the future of business, the economy, and the future of society, all of society, as they see it and as they imagine it. Now, what that immediately then does is it begs the question, well, who appointed them to this position where they're the ones that are sort of um, very publicly, in some ways at least, because they do a lot of things that are not very public, of course, but they certainly don't hide the fact that they're getting together and discussing these topics. And their website is constantly churning out papers and videos and articles about how they imagine the world in the future, perhaps the not too distant. So they kind of operate in reality as a sort of self-appointed world government in a sense that no one's elected them. They're not a supranational body in the sense of the UN or uh, an international entity like that, even though they seem to be very closely aligned with what uh, entities such as the UN are doing, and we'll talk more about that. But they're, they're not elected, they're not a governmental body. Uh, politicians do sometimes participate in there, or many times it's ex-politicians that have gone into the business world who participate in their meetings. Uh, but it's mostly people from uh, and representatives from these large companies. It could be Meta, it could be Google, uh, it could be uh, something like Walmart, for instance. It's not just tech companies. And they seem to have appointed themselves to the role of deciding what the future is going to be. So again, we can dive into more detail about any of these things, but to give a quick example, uh, in their last meeting their, uh, that was held in Davos in late May, uh, one of the big topics of discussion there, and it's something I wrote about for the Defender, uh, was the metaverse and how they imagine it and what they imagine the impact of it will be. 
on all sorts of different things like education, for instance, uh, commerce and so forth. So um, they seem to have this uh, attitude about things that, well, you know, we're in control of the world's major uh, corporate players. And therefore, we're giving ourselves the role of deciding what is good for all the rest of you. So that's how I would describe the World Economic Forum and the manner in which it operates in a nutshell. Yeah, you mentioned at, at the beginning, uh, you write about the technocracy, but there's also, like you just said there, it's not just the tech giants. There's the corporatocracy as well, this gathering of big business and politicians. I mean, uh, Klaus has openly said uh, on a couple of occasions that he has multiple people within the Trudeau cabinet government. You've got ex-young global leaders from the World Economic Forum um, that are in positions of power. Now, Boris has recently stepped down, but then you had Jacinda Ardern, you had... Uh, Angela Merkel, I think, was another one. Mm -hmm. Even Vladimir Putin was a former young global leader. Uh, so they have a sort of system of grooming world leaders and grooming people that will be in influential positions with uh, big tech, big business, etc., to have some kind of power and influence so long as they can mold their thought process. Now, with that said, then, they have people in particular positions of power. They have people who they have some modicum of influence over. But that's just the business side of things. How is it that they then marry up with the UN? Because that's then on a much bigger scale than having a few people in your pocket, right? Absolutely, and I think that's an excellent question. I don't know all the details. I can't profess to know what all of their inner workings are as far as how they sort of um, come together and, and um, work together in this myriad of ways. But what seems obvious is that there seems to be an inordinate amount of influence from the World Economic Forum and the entities that comprise the uh, the World Economic Forum towards bodies like the UN. What I think, um, and then at the same time, you mentioned the, the young global leaders um, and how they seem to have infiltrated many governments around the world in addition to many boardrooms around the world. Well, I'm sure the UN is no exception to that. Um, so, what that does is it creates a situation where you have alumni of this essentially grooming program that are in key positions in governments, in organizations, in nonprofits, NGOs, and corporations, of course. And they seem to operate very much as a network, uh, a preferred network of people that have been trained and been groomed in a sense to have the same worldview and the same goals. And then the actions that they take within their respective entities, whether it's the UN or whether it's a particular national government or, or a corporation, are all then magically aligned with each other. So if we look at the UN, uh, you have, for instance, uh, Agenda 2030, 
and the so-called SDGs, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, with, and the target date for those goals to be implemented is 2030 as well. So this is all, you know, following the same timeline, right? So if you look at these goals, these SDGs, um, there's 17 of them. I don't remember all of the 17 off of the top of my head, but um, the idea is that they want, you know, they dress this up in very nice language that, oh, we want a better world, a more quote unquote sustainable world, a more um, inclusive world where there is not so much inequality between people and poverty is eradicated and childhood poverty is eradicated and so on. And, you know, they use all the right buzzwords uh, and it sort of gives legitimacy to what they're trying to do. So the devil really is in the details. And it's sort of something that you then, you know, if you study these sorts of things uh, closely enough and then you sort of see the, the, the types of policies that are beginning to be implemented in certain parts of the world, you kind of see how one and the other are actually connected. So you mentioned uh, a few moments ago, for instance, um, okay, it suddenly got dark. If you light on. Uh, so you mentioned a few moments ago, Sri Lanka, for instance. I'm not an expert on Sri Lanka, but from what I have read and from my understanding of uh, the uh, situation in that country, um, people were going uh, going with essentially without food and without fuel for a while now, increasing, you know, sharply increasing levels of poverty and hunger. Uh, and there's only so much that a population can take, uh, especially if they're also seeing their, their elected leadership class living like kings, essentially. So Sri Lanka, well, if we dig back about five years, uh, there was an article that appeared on the uh, World Economic Forum's website, which they've since taken uh, they've taken it down, but you can still find it on the Internet Archive, um, talking about how within five years or, or, or some short span of time like that, uh, Sri Lanka was going to be made rich, and it was going to be made rich with all of these WEF-prescribed policies. And of course, that didn't happen. They didn't become rich. They became more impoverished until finally the situation uh, blew up. So they were following WEF-type thinking, and the WEF was praising them as you know, a model student, so to speak. And we saw what the result of that was. Uh, another example that I can think of that probably is also connected uh, to both, you know, WEF types of uh, policies and goals, but also UN sustainable development type goals is what we've been seeing happening in the Netherlands in the past month or so with the major protests organized by farmers uh, against that government's policies to all of a sudden, out of the blue, reduce nitrogen emissions and, and the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers and farming and so forth by a huge percentage, 70-80%, to the extent that it's essentially going to drive most farmers out of business. Uh, there's new restrictions on land use, so will restrict the number of uh, cattle that they could have on their land and so forth. Uh, so all of this 
seems to be intended to drive farmers and in particular small independent farmers, family farms and so on out of business uh, because the rules of operating will be so onerous and strict that it will essentially be impossible to operate and to make a living. And notice that the, the rationale and the justification that they are using for these policies is the environment. Um, and these goals that they supposedly have to meet by yeah, 2030 or so, reducing nitrogen emission, which no one was talking about even a year ago. But now all of a sudden it's like the next big thing in, in terms of climate change. Uh, so reducing nitrogen use, nitrogen emissions, and nitrogen pollution in the soil and the water and so on. And you notice also that they're not... Um, uh, they're not proposing any alternatives to the use of, let's say, artificial fertilizer. fertilizer. Yeah, right. They're they're just going straight to we're just going to shut you down essentially. So yeah. this is kind of an example that I think is is indicative of uh, these sustainable development goals because you know things like nitrogen reductions that are suddenly being pushed are being promoted as, you know, uh, one of the steps that's being taken towards sustainability. Yeah, it's going to make so, us green and it's going to stop the planet burning. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So so I think this is what the SDGs, the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, actually seem to be intended to do. And as we're seeing, it's creating a lot of unrest. We've seen it in Sri Lanka. We've seen it in the Netherlands. We've seen it in Canada a few months ago when the truckers uh, organized their convoy uh, against uh, that government's uh, vaccine mandates, which were making it, uh, we're essentially forcing truckers to get vaccinated or get lost, essentially. And this was impacting supply chains. Uh, supply chain disruptions has become another buzzword in the past year or so to excuse all sorts of shortages of all sorts of uh, goods on the shelves in many different countries, um, energy shortages. So all of this seems to lead back to the same place, these sorts of sustainable goals that on the one hand, you have organizations like the UN promoting, and on the one hand, you have um, entities such as the uh, the World Economic Forum promoting. And it's interesting because this will be my closing point on this uh, on this question. But you know, you look at who's in the World Economic Forum. So many you know large corporations, and supposedly the rhetoric is, oh capitalism, large corporations, they just care about profits. Well, they seem to care about some other things right now. They seem to be, they seem to care about pushing a certain agenda that has kind of a social engineering aspect to it. Um, and I think that makes sense because these corporations, they've been bailed out by governments again and again. They seem to uh, not have to worry about getting in trouble uh, because uh, taxpayer money can be provided to them at any time if they're in trouble. So what seems to be their main uh, issue is not so much making money because they can make it uh, as easily as they want, it seems. Uh, it seems to be power and control and influence. And this is where... Um, you know, this very onerous sort of idea that there's these young global leaders that have infiltrated 
corporations, governments, organizations, and so forth, really seems to then, um, it sort of all begins to fit together. Because again, these, you know, if you have people, your people, and all of these different entities, and it becomes that much more easier to coordinate and to sort of steer policy in a certain direction. Yeah, it, it really is a massive um, jigsaw puzzle, and you don't get the true scope of the reach of this thing and just how insidious it is until you take a step back and look at all the pieces that are on the board, and then all of a sudden you start to see this picture that does spell out WF, it spells out SDG and social development goals, and it also spells out the ESG in those environmental, social, and governance scores. And that's exactly what was happening in Sri Lanka. Like you mentioned, they were trying to hit these goals as set out by the UN, by the WEF, with their ESG score. And they had one of the best ESG ratings. And for people who aren't familiar, ESG ratings are essentially, if it's a good rating, it says to external corporations that that's potentially a good country to invest in. They're going to get a lot of returns, yada, yada, that sort, sort of thing. And that's why you had the, uh, I believe it's prime minister, uh, president of Sri Lanka, the, the leader of Sri Lanka making these bold claims of, yeah, yeah, we're going to do all these things. We're going to hit all these goals and then we're going to be super rich. But there was no, like you mentioned, there was no interim step of what are we going to do in the meantime when we reach these goals for uh, carbon, when we reach these goals for nitrogen by pulling out the fertilizer, by reducing the amount of um, animals that we're going to be able to uh, farm and whatnot. And so, but surely you saw increases in Sri Lanka on their food prices, on their fuel prices on their standard of living it just became too expensive for the people to be able to do anything at all whilst like you said the people in power were ultimately thriving at the end of the day and the mom and pop store down the road was having to put its shutters down for the final time and wondering how they were going to get their next meal and obviously that led to a sort of um I'm going to use the word insurrection uh, over that way. And uh, now you've got a similar thing that looked to be unfolding in the Netherlands, as like you say, the goals are then being pushed out onto the farmers there, where a farm of, say, 120 cattle is then going to be cut down to 20. And that then leads to the point where the farmer can't afford to use their land or keep their land. And those farmers that decide not to go with the dog and pony show that's being presented to the rest of the world the government has said that if you don't play along we're just going to take it we're going to seize your land so even if people decided mm, you know what these rules aren't for me i'm going to crack on as i'm going i'm going to keep doing some good farming you know, netherlands is one of the biggest exporters of their agriculture and the government's just going to step in and say no. They're going to come down with that whip. And I'm sure you've seen the videos of the police opening fire on people moving away, uh, of them being quite heavy-handed, very quick to whip the baton out. And it was no different during the COVID protests either. Um, the uh, Yeah, um, I, I'm not going to get deep on slacking off the police forces you know, if I was in trouble. 
they'd also be the first people I'd call. But at the same time, they were heavy handed with the protesters in the videos that you see where nothing is happening or nothing of risk. They turn almost immediately to um, being the protesters and trying to beat them back. But then we get into this the thing that you mentioned there with social engineering and how these ESG scores and these attempts to um, green up the individual countries uh, having an effect on people. What is it? that's happening on a social engineering level um you know you're someone with quite the diverse background with the political sciences and whatnot um with your media journalism background you can look at things from different angles where is this social engineering taking us and how is it that we've been led in blind here like sheep to the slaughter why is it that no one's really picked up on the idea well, I think, you know, to answer the last part first, I think that until recently, at least, a lot of the social engineering and a lot of these changes would happen in very small incremental steps that were almost unnoticeable. And another thing that I'd noticed over the years is that the way in which they would sort of poison the well would be one drop at a time. So they'll introduce very slowly a certain idea into the media uh, in a sort of disguised way. Uh, I'll use the consumption of meat as an example. And, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, this is not an attack on anyone that's vegetarian or vegan, uh, as long as I would say it's a personal choice of theirs. Uh, what I have seen happening, though, is it must have been around 20, I would say around 2014 or so, where I suddenly began to see here and there an article on one news site, then on another news site a few weeks later, um, suddenly talking in a very almost like innocent sort of way um, about some sort of problem or another related to the consumption of meat. And it wasn't the usual sort of thing that you may have heard in the past oh you know if you eat a lot of meat you know it's a lot of fat or a lot of cholesterol or things like that it was more focused toward well this might be bad for the environment very sort of you know very slight language like that and when i began seeing those articles it took about maybe two or three for me to then suddenly realize they're going to go towards attacking meat uh, so I said this to myself and just to friends I'd have conversations with at the time around 2014, 2015. And here we are now in 2022. And all of a sudden we have Klaus Schwab um, and his friends talking about um, eating insects. And this is not just a meme that's going around on the Internet. If we look at Canada, for example, with young global leader Trudeau as their prime minister, uh, the Canadian government, this was straight from the CBC, their national broadcaster, uh, has invested over $8 million Canadian dollars in a new uh, production facility, a private produ uh, production facility uh, that produces uh, insects for food, for consumption. And uh, again, he even here, notice there, there are sort of um, 
you know, they're not going all the way. They're not, they're not going from A to Z immediately. There's intermediate steps. So the, the CBC article that I read said, oh, most of the insects that will be produced at this facility will be for pet food. Okay, so it's for your pets. It's not really for you. But the, they said it's most of it. And then also in that same article, you then sort of get quotes from people that are associated with this company talking about how they see this as a, you know, as a growth market and how there, there was this one quote, I think, from their CEO that said uh, that uh, insects are an ancient source of nutrition. And they didn't mean for pets. They meant for humans. Interesting. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I thought that was very telling. So they kind of, you know, insert things here and insert things there. And it, it, it kind of gets you used to hearing these things kind of in the background, first of all, and it kind of normalizes this rhetoric. And then at some point, five, six, seven, ten years down the road, um, it doesn't seem as strange as it used to be. Um uh, when you know when the the prospect is raised that oh maybe you can eat uh, some insects instead of having a hamburger for instance, um, the WEF has had videos on their uh, on their website going back uh, around five or six years. Uh, they love to make these videos about how wonderful the future, right? So one of these videos was about how oh in the future you'll have one beef burger. And I don't know, like two eggs a week or something like that. And they were promoting this as some sort of really wonderful, amazing, nice thing, right? So, um, so they've been promoting this sort of um, these sorts of uh, policies and these sorts of behaviors for quite a while now, and we're beginning to see that this is really getting uh, ratcheted up uh, in recent um, in recent months. Having mentioned the Netherlands. You mentioned, of course, and it's absolutely true, that they're a huge agricultural uh, exporter. In fact, they believe they're number two in the world in agricultural exports behind the U.S. So there's actually two sides to what's going on over there. Not only are these farmers, if these policies do end up becoming permanent, not only will most of these farmers be driven out of business and driven off of their land, but also... What impact is that going to have on prices and on the availability of goods, um, meat and agricultural products for consumers, both directly, you know, going to the supermarket and there being some meat in the refrigerator, and even indirectly, you know, where other companies buy the raw materials and sort of produce processed foods and so on based on those materials and then sell them to, you know, sell them to the public. So this will probably drive up prices, will probably create more food shortages. And if there's food shortages and you get people desperate enough, uh, then maybe uh, some people will become more willing to try an insect burger or something like that, because there might not be much, uh, much else to eat. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling in, in, in a sense it's the whole thing just sounds so absurd and so ludicrous, but at the same time, I really think this is what they're trying to do. And I, 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 and I kind of get the sense that it doesn't have anything to do with our health, for instance. They're not coming out and just saying, oh, you shouldn't eat meat. It's harmful for your health. You're all going to have heart attacks or anything like that. No, they're talking about it as if it's going to save the environment. If you're going to stop eating hamburgers and it's going to save the environment, if you get rid of 
all of the uh, dairy cows because they're releasing flatulence into the atmosphere and that's contributing to climate change. Um, New Zealand, actually another young global leader there was going to introduce a flatulence tax, tax on, on cattle. That's I don't know insane. how they're going to. <laughs> I, I have no idea how something like that is calculated. I'm not sure I want to know how it's calculated, but they, this is a serious proposal. This is not from the Onion. It's not from the Babylon Bee or any of those satire sites. These are real policies that they're talking about. So uh, I think ultimately, and this is what I'll conclude with, what they want to do is they want to get people in a situation where they've been weakened, whether it's physically or mentally, they feel more insecure, whether it's financially or in, ter or in terms of their ability to survive, to feed themselves and so on. Um, and a population, I think, that kind of has these insecurities and these fears and these worries, um, they're you know, what the powers that be are probably thinking is they're probably going to become more malleable, more accepting of the solutions, solutions we're then going to come, uh, come back to them with um, for these problems, even though they have created those problems or artificial problems created in the first place. So I think that's what they're trying to do ultimately. I think they're trying to get people desperate enough that they're going to accept uh, the um, solutions, the so-called that will then be presented to them. It's, I, in one sense, I have to tip my hat to the World Economic Forum and the way that they've done this with, with the mission creep because they've done it so well. They have introduced these ideas and these concepts slowly over time. Um, you know, the, the, the now famous, it's 2030, I own nothing and I'm happy or you'll own nothing and you'll be happy kind of thing these sorts of things with the insects they're getting celebrities to endorse it and eat full course insect meals i forget which one it was um that that was doing the videos for them but it it, it really almost is that now their labors are bearing fruit for them in the sense that like you say um there is now a sudden influx of people that will do the fake meats because I think it's for the environment coming back to the flatulence. I think it's in Germany. They have these special uh, machines hooked up to capture the cow's farts as absurd as that is. It's like a, a jet pack uh, backpack, but instead of jet fuel, it's catching methane from the cow's rear end and all of this in order to curb emissions kind of thing. Uh, and it, it sounds made up when you say it out loud, it sounds like, you know, I shouldn't have headphones on. I should just have a tinfoil hat and be sitting in a basement somewhere and scared that the the man is listening to me. But it's it's been well thought out. And I think sometimes that element of this is lost in this conversation because it sounds almost like this has happened in the last few years. You know, you saw the article five years ago or so, or, you know, We've read documents that they've produced that go back 10 years, but actually it goes back even further than that. This is something that's been planned out for over two decades. When I, I can't remember when the World Economic Forum was established, but I think it was maybe even before I was born or yeah. Uh, but it, 
it's been around for a long time and they've had a long time to get people in positions and to learn about these social behaviors that we have and learn like you said more about the social engineering of how we can be nudged into these decisions for people to be nudged into taking these plant-based burgers instead um these soy-based fake meat kind of things despite the fact that it's been proven that they're actually worse for your health that you are better with the heart attack causing beef burger make that what you will um dear listener but that's not the only area that is being hit there are other areas being hit as well there's the energy which loops back again into climate and actually the energy has been hit so hard and now being blamed on uh the russia ukraine situation but donald trump called it i think back in i want to say 2017 or 2018 that germany is too reliant on russian gas and whatnot um if there's ever any issues and they're going to be screwed and we now have articles of germany saying in hamburg they might have to set up warming tents because they're going to have such a crisis such a shortage of power despite the fact that they have nuclear plants that are ready to go that have been decommissioned because of reaching x goal and it could be turned back on and the people that run those plants say we could turn them on or even coal-fired plants worst case scenario you know so how is it then that our energy sectors because even the uk is suffering here the netherlands is also being hit with massive uh, surges in their bills in the uk it could get to 3600 a, a year to heat your home or whatever it, it's nuts that's more than a month's paycheck for most people uh, that paycheck needs to go to other places too how is it that that's come about well i think that this kind of goes back to the same type of thinking that these entities like the wef and uh, the people that compose it um, engage in uh, you mentioned high energy bills in uh, several different countries where i am right now in greece it's no exception energy bills shot up uh, beginning at the end of last year and especially at the start of this year uh, to the point where just, you know, an ordinary flat, you know, two-bedroom apartment uh, in Athens where you just have a small household, maybe just like two or three people living there, will be getting bills of 800 or 900 euros uh, for a two-month period. And... You know, not only is that, you know, it, it incomes are not particularly high in Greece. So this is really destroying people's household budgets. Uh, and a lot of people, I, I think I saw a statistic, it was about 10,000 households had their electricity shut off because, you know, there's no social safety net for them. Um, doesn't matter if suddenly, you know, they were paying 80 euros a month and then it became, you know, 400 in the span of one or two months, you know, if you can't afford to pay it too bad for shutting it down. And what that brought to mind immediately is that for Greece, at least, this is not new. Um, and this is where some other international organizations that are all I think, part of this, uh, you know, they're all part of this, um, let's say, network of, uh, of uh, part of the power structure. 
they got involved in Greece a decade ago or so when Greece came into its uh, so-called economic crisis, its debt, as they were calling it. One of the first, the reason I'm mentioning this is because it has, it, I think it, it's directly connected to what's happening today. It was almost like a test run. Uh, one of the first things that was done in Greece was to, aside from introducing a property tax, which was supposed to be temporary for one year, and here we are 11 years later, and it's still there. Uh, but aside from that, which of course, you know, creates a situation where people are now at risk of losing their properties if they don't pay the tax, so it's not really their property anymore, um, is energy uh, was directly attacked. And it was attacked... Um, First of all, through raising to insane levels the tax and heating oil. So what that did was it created a situation where almost overnight the consumption of heating oil fell 75 or 80 or 90 percent because the price went up by about that much because of all of the added taxes that were tacked onto it. So people could no longer afford to you know, at heating oil for their homes, for their apartments uh, and apartment buildings that would buy collectively oil and fill up, you know, the building's tank with it. Um, most tenants would refuse to agree to continue purchasing oil because uh, even, even if the cost was shared among everyone in the building it was still far too expensive. Uh, there, interestingly enough, the result of that was not very green at all because a lot of people started lighting fireplaces and often, oftentimes makeshift fireplaces, um, spewing out all sorts of pollutants into the air. Uh, so in the winter months in cities like Athens, you have this very noxious smog in the air. It's very noticeable and you can smell it the atmosphere smells very smoky uh from people burning fireplaces because they're not turning their uh their central heating on um and now in as electricity has gotten more expensive they're not even going to be using their air conditioning units their inverters for heating anymore either because if you run your ac even you know even moderately that is going to drive your bill up to insane levels. I, you know, in the winter months when the, when the electricity prices really started skyrocketing, it was a very cold month uh, from mid to late January to mid to late, around mid-February. Uh, I had, my building doesn't have central heat, so I was using uh, the AC. And an electric bill that up until then had been around 50, 60 euros a month suddenly became 250. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it just created the situation where people are limiting their energy use, not because they want to, and not because suddenly everyone has sort of gotten on board with, you know, this green, you know, so-called green agenda, but because essentially they're being priced out of energy use. So now we're seeing more and more extreme examples of that. You mentioned Hamburg, you know, turning off warm showers, turning off the lights on monuments and public buildings. Um, we had that agreement that was done at the EU level a couple of weeks ago where they said that they're, quote unquote, voluntarily going to agree to a 15, 
percent cut um, in uh, energy consumption. But if that fails, you know they have all of these plans. Uh, all of these backup plans, including rolling blackouts, they already said in Athens that they're going to instruct uh, local councils and municipalities to remove 10% of the street, street lamps. They'll actually literally go and take the light bulbs out uh, of 10% of the, of the lampposts. Jesus uh, Christ. So you, have, <laughs> they, you have all of this absurdity. They said they're going to turn off the lights and monuments like the Acropolis is lit up at night, right? But they're going to turn that off at 3 a.m. Uh, so it won't be lit up uh, after 3 a.m. Um, all of these things, uh, just for them to pursue whatever it is they're pursuing uh, in their, in, you know, in, in terms of their sanctions with Russia, uh, which don't seem to have hurt Russia very much, but they're still enforcing them anyway. So it, it really seems that the only... Uh, the only people that are really getting hurt by these sanctions are ordinary people in Europe and the U.S. and so on. And it, it begs the question, is that, is that actually the goal? Are they actually looking to get people used to colder, darker winters with less energy use? Because it just seems so convenient. You would think that if the, if the goal actually was to punish Russia uh, and they saw that these sanctions, far from doing that, have actually led to a situation where Russia has found new lucrative markets for its energy products, uh, you'd think they'd try something else, right? But no, they're, they're keeping at it and they're just telling people like what the German government is doing now that, oh, you might have to prepare for some blackouts and you might have to stop taking warm showers and things like that. So, you know, is, is that really their goal? Uh, for other reasons, do they want again to socially condition people get used to living like this, um, so that they can then say uh, how great this has been for the environment? For instance, I remember this will be my final point. You know, COVID, the lockdowns, right? Well, um, I remember Bloomberg running an article uh, a few months or about a year after the first uh, lockdowns, talking about how there was a 7%, uh, I believe it was 7% cut in emissions across the board as a result of these lockdowns. And then I think it was the WEF, so it's them again, uh, with also citing that same statistic in one of their articles and basically saying, that's great. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Emissions went down. They did, they sort of bypassed the fact that people had to interrupt their lives for that to happen. And then they said, we need more of this if we are to achieve the 2030 goals, right? So in other words, they were saying, we need the 7% reduction every year until 2030. Well, if they can't do lockdowns every year, then maybe they'll find other ways to achieve those. And maybe what's happening now with energy is another one of those ways. It's, like you say, a bit too convenient that it's all happening. But I mean... It was just a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it, that Joe Biden was saying that, like you mentioned, the sanctions with Russia, yeah, we're going to hurt, but we have to hurt in order to really make him feel it. Don't worry, everything will be fine, but um, we'll make them pay with with these sanctions that actually the Russian ruble has been doing better than it has for quite some time. In fact, the, the BRICS countries are, are now sorting out their own deals, going to each other and, and sorting out their own ways to 
shift um, the oil and gas around. Uh, and it, if anything, Russia has only benefited from this up to this point. Um, and like like you mentioned, people like yourselves in Greece, like us here in the Netherlands, my uh, family back in the UK, are only suffering and looking at rolling blackouts. And it's a bit baffling that it's not being picked up by the legacy media and that this isn't being adequately explored and that the the leaders aren't being adequately pushed on these topics and they're sort of just being left to their own devices and continuing to to run things into the ground and everyone should just be okay with it smile and nod and say Do you know what it doesn't matter if i can't afford to eat because soon it will be insects anyway it the the way in which it has been structurally enforced is again admirable because at every single level it's just accepted now there are the farmers protests there are the truckers protests there's been the uprising in sri lanka but then if you look at the rest of the us if you look at the rest of the netherlands the rest of the uk the rest of europe there's not really a lot okay there's there's protests in italy um and a couple other places but it's not that people are standing up en masse to say we can't afford our standard of living and it's you people that are driving this sort it out none of that's happening none of that is is being acknowledged and it's it, it's all putin's fault it's putin's problem and and that's it it's yeah I, We've been a bit doom and gloom, but how is it that we as the regular Joes can can do something about this? Right. I, I observe the same things that you're observing. And, you know, here in Greece, for instance, there hasn't been a whole lot of protest against these energy prices, for instance, even though they're bankrupt households. Um, and I think it comes down to it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think that unfortunately a lot of organizations that people kind of are waiting uh, on them to sort of take the first step and organize a protest or organize some other types of actions against governments, corporations, and so on. They're not really doing anything. So this may sound conspiratorial as well, but uh, to what extent are a lot of these organizations also captured by the same sort of power structure uh, that has captured so many national governments and so many corporations and boardrooms and, uh, and so many organizations around the world? So uh, labor unions, for instance, are mostly quiet uh, on this front. Uh, I know there's been some labor union strikes in recent months in the transport sector in some countries. And it also, it kind of even makes me wonder if, uh, if even those are kind of staged in a way, in the sense that they found this time, right now in the middle of summer, when people after two years of lockdowns want to do a little bit of traveling with whatever money they do have, uh, whatever disposable income they might have, even for a few days of uh, vacation, 
um, suddenly going on strike, the trains aren't running, the flights aren't taking off and so on. Baggage is being lost in, in Amsterdam. I know they were talking about limiting the number of flights in and out and dressing that up within, you know, in, environmental justifications. That was the uh, solution that the guy that runs Schiphol Airport, that was his only solution. Yeah, we're, we're just going to cut the flights. That's it. Right. It's no interesting. They're 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 talking about like staff shortages and then they're not saying, well, you know, we'll hire more people. They're sort of they're taking it in a different direction. Like, yeah. oh, there's nothing else we can do. We have to cancel flights. We have to place limits on the number of flights coming in and out and the number of travelers coming in and out and so on. So it's 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 very suspicious, obviously. And then a lot of other unions getting back to that uh, to that point. Uh, are just silent. You know, you think that anything that is hurting the working person's income would be something that they would sort of uh, take action upon, and it's not happening in a lot of places. So it leads me to believe that they have in some way either been captured um, and uh, are sort of operating, uh, you know, by running the same line, essentially, as the, as the powers that be, or they're scared of speaking out because what else has been created is sort of this atmosphere where um, if you speak out against certain things, you're immediately labeled. You're a conspiracy theorist, you're alt-right, you're a Trump supporter, you're a fascist, you're this, you're that. Uh, and these are all meant to be really, really terrible things that are that will discredit you immediately. So uh, a lot of people are afraid of those sorts of labels and they don't speak up as a result. But I think in terms of the ordinary public, uh, I could use Greece as an example. I mean, I think there's a lot of people here that are aware of what's happening and that are angry about what's happening. But where everything kind of gets short-circuited is they're waiting for someone else to take the first step. And that someone else isn't necessarily their neighbor or just some other ordinary individuals but they're waiting for like a political party with like some savior to show up and magically say and do the right things and you know make things better again or they're waiting for some organization that is going to organize something and get people out in the streets uh and uh that will make a difference right um and, and the problem is you know if a lot of those organizations are captured they're not going to go out on the street and they're not going to come out and say the right things or they're only going to say a very, you know, they'll say the right things up to a certain extent, but there will be boundaries that they won't surpass because they've sort of been given, they're almost operating as what we might call controlled opposition, right? They're, they will only take things so far, but not any further so as to not create actual risk for the system. I think the ones that are protesting, like the farmers, like the truckers, may be the last entities that are not captured or not fully captured by this sort of apparatus. Uh, and they may, as a result, have been able uh, through their, you know, through their organizations, through their associations to organize something like a proper convoy or like the farmers protests in the Netherlands right now. Uh, but I, I really get the sense that there's, you know, a lot of, uh, what we call capture in a lot of different organizations and certainly in political parties and in the media as well. So the media, people turn, you know, when people are turning to the media to find out what's going on in the world and the media isn't even telling them that, that there's an uprising in Sri Lanka 
uh, and is barely saying anything uh, about the farmers uh, uprising in the Netherlands, like here in Greece. I don't think I've seen more than maybe like two articles in the mainstream media about it. It's almost like out of sight, out of mind. Well, uh, here in the Netherlands, they were calling them uh, almost terrorists and and whatnot. So it, even the press coverage that they are getting in their own country has been god awful. Right, and the same thing. What's happening in Canada? They were terrorists. They were uh, they were insurrectionists. They were all you know you know fascists. These terrible people that were uh, that were not operating in sort of a democratic sort of way. Uh, even though they were actually operating in a very democratic sort of way, they were, you know, taking, going directly to the public and directly to the streets message. Uh, but obviously, that's not how the media spins it domestically or internationally. Uh, and unfortunately, I think even segments of the what we might call the alternative media do this too as well. Um, one 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 thing that I see both the mainstream media and some alternative media doing is a lot of fear, 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 fear. And, and I think what that does is it paralyzes. Like, I'll use an example, even a lot of like the pro-Trump media in the US, I'm not going to name names, but I think it's almost like their, their MO has been to sort of string their supporters along that, oh, this investigation into the 2020 elections is going on, and this lawsuit was filed, and that development took place in Arizona or Wisconsin or whatever. Um, and on the other hand, every time the WEF says something or every time you know some mayor, some governor, or some politician in some other country announces something ridiculous, um, it's always the headline is always warded in such a way that it, it it's maximum fear, like like it ends or uh, here we go uh, or you know they're going to get us, they're going to throw us all in jail or something like that. And I think that it paralyzes people, it makes them afraid to speak up, or it makes them feel like oh, there's nothing we can do. This is all inevitable. Uh, this is all you know going to happen. Um, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. So it's fear um, porn. It's that it's, it's fear porn. Yeah. Clickbait media. Yeah. There's so much of it. And, and it really has an impact on people because even people that understand what's going on to a certain extent, at least, and do not agree with it many times get paralyzed by the fear porn. It's almost like, it's almost like the system has been creative enough to create multiple filters if you get past one there's another one waiting for you and if you get past that one there's another one and so on so it so the net catches progressively more and more people including a lot of people that are aware uh and do in fact not agree with a lot of what's happening but something or other is going to be there to stop them then how so do that, we get past that well yeah. so that brings I, us back to the question of what can we do rather than being paralyzed how is it that we can overcome or, or resist I, well i think the the first step is we just have to continue informing ourselves uh and doing the research and doing the reading and, and in fact i'll even take this position that that includes even looking at the mainstream media in what sense though in a very sort of critical thinking sort of of, of they say things in their own media that give us a lot of hints as to what they're thinking and what they want to do and what they wish to accomplish. And if we sort of understand how to read these stories and understand what sorts of 
rhetoric and what sorts of buzzwords they're using to sort of dress up their policies as something that's really great and wonderful, then we can sort of get into their, into their mind, so to speak, and understand what it is they're actually trying to do. So, so that's part of it, as well as reading, of course, alternative sources of information. And I, I think one has to be a critical thinker when reading Lowe's as well, you know, uh, and not just, you know, believe something because it's quote unquote not mainstream. Uh, I would even say that for anyone reading my articles for the Defender, be a critical thinker. Don't just don't just believe it because you like how I write or anything like that. Uh, I try to provide links and, and, and sources to everything that I say so that it's not just me coming across as someone that's saying these things. Uh, but I think that's important, you know, just taking as much time as possible in our busy lives to get informed and to stay informed. And then I think with whatever social circles we have, even if it's just a few people, just a few friends that we trust enough that we can uh, talk to them about these things, um, trying to do as many things with them as possible, um, even outside the, you know, the, the official structures of society. So I was doing an interview the other day with um, um, a former professor uh, who has written a lot about the Great Reset and all these sorts of things that are being put by the WEF. Uh, his name is Michael Rechtenwald. And he, had, uh, you know, I'll give him credit for this. His proposal, which I think makes sense, was, you know, parallel economies. And it's funny because he's coming at this from the right, right? He's not, you know, you used to hear this from a lot of sort of like left-wing activists. Oh, smash the system, create these, you know, parallel economies, uh, buy local, shop local, support your local farmers and so on. And it's funny, now they're not saying this, they're saying like whatever the WEF tells them to say. So, and you have someone that's now coming from the libertarian right saying parallel economies, go outside the system trade directly with uh, other people that you know, use cash, use barter, uh, support each other as much as possible outside of, uh, you know, the structures of, of, of society. And you may not be able to escape it 100%. I think that's very difficult to do unless you live like the Amish do in the US or something like that. But you can at least escape a lot of it. And at the same time, you can also be very much aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So I think it, that is at least in part a solution. And if enough people are able to get on board with something like this, it makes the uh, the plans that the powers that be have, it just makes it more difficult to implement. And they may have to even backtrack and they have backtracked on a few things when enough people have uh, spoken out against them. Yeah, that, that power of everyone getting together has done a lot in the last couple of years whether it is ending mandates or rolling back mandates stopping them from coming in entirely uh or lockdowns and things like that so so there is a lot of power in people coming together um there's there's two things i want to touch on in what you just said one is the elephant in the room that we haven't spoken about the great reset and the other one is you mentioned reading between the lines of media articles and also what's being said now again you have a pretty uh, a pretty thorough background in media with what you've studied and all the years that you've worked within journalism and whatnot and also lecturing as well you have 
a very deep understanding. So when you see colorful language in a headline, something flicks a switch in your mind to say, okay, it's the colorful language, but when we break this down into its base parts, what is it actually saying? Or when you read the article and you realize actually the first two paragraphs were just fluff and framing, then the middle paragraph was the actual content that was worthwhile. And then we got more fluff and extra framing at the end. How is it, again, that regular Joe can pick up an article and what are the things that they should look out for that might be nudges in a particular direction or might be cues to look out for that actually this is being presented in a particular light, which in all sorts of journalism, we all do it. Even in our conversation here, we've probably definitely presented things in a particular light, but what is it that people should look out for in those kinds of things? Even when you try and stay as objective as you can, you're going to hit that eventually, right? Well, I think that one thing that people can do when reading these sorts of stories or listening to something on TV or, or anything like that is to sort of try to ask themselves what is not being said. You know, you're given information in a particular article, in a particular story. You might get quotes from certain individuals that are most often used to support what the main premise of uh, that article or that story is, well, you might want to ask yourself who, you know, what perspective is not being heard, you know, uh, what side or what sides are not being presented in the story. And even if you're not familiar enough with the issue to imagine what the other sides might be, you can at the very least ask yourself, well, you know, they're presenting this article about why we should eat less meat, for instance, to give an example. Um, you know, is there is there a possible counter argument for that? Humanity has been eating meat, you know, since the dawn of its existence. Why all of a sudden now are we being told it's such a terrible thing? Um, what sort of language is being used? What sorts of words are being used to... Uh, as you said, nudge um, the public in a certain direction. Um, and if we sort of keep in mind that the news media, uh, the mainstream media in particular, it supposedly tries to be objective, even though, interestingly enough, at the WF this year, they actually admitted we're not objective at all. Uh, and we have no problem with that. So they said it themselves, but uh, I think a lot of the public still kind of hangs on to this notion that the news media is objective, it presents both sides, you know, they're they're not really taking a side, when they are taking a side very obviously. So, so one way in which they do that is uh, through the language that they use and the word choice that they make in these stories. When I was reading articles a decade ago about the Greek economic crisis, um, I would notice that they would sort of very nonchalantly pepper their stories with words like necessary reforms. So they weren't saying that Greece was enacting reforms, let's say, because the IMF told Greece to do so. They were enacting reforms because they were necessary. Um, and it was a, a word that was just thrown in there without any additional context, without any explanation as to why it's necessary. The Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg or whatever, the New York Times says it's necessary, so it's necessary. Uh, no questions asked. 
So they do that with all sorts of different topics. They do it with climate change, they do it with COVID, they do it uh, with um, pretty much every, every type of uh, issue or topic that you can imagine. So I think that the more you begin paying attention to the types of words that they use and how they sort of nonchalantly insert them into stories in many ways, in addition to um, looking at uh, who's being quoted in the story. So you might have stories about the farmers protesting in the Netherlands, and they might quote a politician. They might quote uh, some sort of analyst from some think tank or something or other. Uh, are they quoting any farmers? Are they actually asking them why are they on the streets? In many cases, you'll find they're not speaking to them at all. So then you might want to ask yourself, well, if the topic of the story is these protests, why aren't you talking to the people that are protesting, but you're talking to everyone else? So if you sort of get your mind working like that, then you begin to find ways to poke holes in the dominant narrative. Uh, and I think that the more you do it, the better one gets at it. Certainly, I think that if I think I, if I even look back at my social media history, the types of things that I was sharing in like 2010, a lot of it I wouldn't share today. Uh, but it sort of has to do with how over the years, as I read more and more and more, um, I began to pick up on more and more things that I wasn't picking up on back then. So it's it's a matter of sort of getting your mind in that initial sort of frame where you're looking at a, a story with a more critical eye. And the more you do it, I think the process then sort of takes on its own momentum and you begin to notice more and more things and you begin to sort of think about these stories in different sorts of ways. Uh, that's, that's definitely how it was for me. Uh, it, after a certain point, I mean, I was probably always a little bit critical, but the rest of it was a sort of momentum and sort of getting used to thinking this way and then everything else followed from that. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's that's a lot of food for thought. And as you say, even someone with your background has taken time to get to where you are now in order to discern the information adequately for for what it is. And then coming on to the the final thing, I think, is <clears throat> what exactly is the Great Reset? I mean, look, we've looked at the economic impacts of um the energy system that's occurring we've looked at what's happening with the food uh, potential food shortage how does this all come together and where does the great reset fit into all of this which is an overarching narrative that people have heard a lot about over the last year or so but it's something that's been going on for quite some time i think ultimately it comes down to economics and economic models and then what follows from that is social model sort of the with the way in which society itself will, will be uh, organized. Um, I'm not sure there is any one single definition of the Great Reset, because even if you go on the WEF's website, they're the ones, of course, that are promoting the Great Reset and have been since 2020. Um, you don't exactly get a clear explanation as to what it is, and I'm sure that's intentional. I'm sure they want to keep the waters, for now at least, as muddied as possible so that there's a lot of confusion about what it is and they can sort of 
use the sort of plausible deniability to sort of say, oh, well, it's really a good thing. It has a lot to do with like sustainability and just creating a better world. You, you might remember they were using slogans like build back better about a year ago. Uh, that, that's kind of the marketing that they were trying to use to promote the, the Great Reset. And what I think they actually want to do is Another one of the phrases that is often used in tandem with the Great Reset or is closely associated with it is the fourth industrial revolution. So where I think they want to take things, and this has been the subject of a couple of vendor articles, um, is a much more automated world uh, that, uh, that is built largely upon artificial intelligence, that is built largely upon virtual reality, that is built largely upon uh, the metaverse. And all of these things don't actually physically exist. They're not tangible things other than maybe the servers that are running them. Um, when Klaus Schwab said he will own nothing and be happy, the irony of it all is that the way that they're promoting the metaverse right now is as this sort of space where you will own all sorts of things. You'll have your house in the metaverse, You'll own designer clothing in the metaverse. You'll own a car in the metaverse. Um, they're already selling. I mean, this is about as, as absurd as it gets. They're already selling designer label clothing, soft drinks and beer like Heineken or Heineken's whatever. Heineken's already there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in a metaverse. So it's not a real Heineken. And you can stay, it's not like picking up a cold one drinking, no. right? It's... It's all virtual. It's pixels. It's a, it's on a server somewhere. Uh, but you'll own this material, this virtual material in the metaverse. And at the same time, you may not may not know you may not own anything in your actual physical real life. Um, so, I think that this this sort of economic model is tied into the fact that they they may feel that as the economy becomes more and more automated, uh, more and more people are going to, more and more jobs are going to become redundant, right? Um, and you kind of get the sense that the powers that be view people that are no longer able to contribute to their, uh, to their profits and to their power uh, as useless eaters, almost as, you know, having a parasitic existence on their planet. Mm. Um, so changing the model around into uh, a very low expectation society where you, I can't imagine really having a lot to strive for if there's no way you can own anything. If, if everything is sort of on a rental basis uh, or is this a service that is to you by the system, by the powers that be, and only if you've been good, by the way, only if you have uh, a, a high enough social credit score, if you're up to date on your vaccines and all of those other wonderful things. Um, you know, I can't imagine that's a society where someone can really be very ambitious, right? So it creates this almost like permanent underclass uh, that will then sort of live on a bare minimum. Uh, I think ideas like universal basic income, where you just get a handout from the government every month, kind of fall into this sort of uh, line of thinking, where you just get your like $500 or $1,000 a month or whatever, um, and you use it to buy Coca-Cola in the metaverse and think <laughs> ridiculous things like that. Uh, so um, 
they're promoting it as a fourth industrial revolution because of this ongoing process of uh, everything becoming virtual, digital, automated, and so on. Um, and, and I think this is, again, also where, you know, things like reducing energy use uh, falls into the picture. You have less industry. Uh, mm -hmm. So less, you know, you're doing away with industry. You're doing away with, uh, uh, you know, factories that, you know, pollute the environment and so on. So um, you're creating, you know, a, a much lower expectations in terms of buying and using actual real physical consumer goods. Uh, so that leads to reduced production. Um, and that, of course, will be presented as, you know, conserving resources and being good for the environment and so on. But you could still buy a designer item of clothing on the metaverse. So you can still sort of kind of live vicariously through this, you know, artificial virtual world. Emoji. Uh, but, yeah. yeah. But not, not actually enjoy any of those things or most of those things in real life. So, um, Will they succeed? You know, is is this where things are headed? I, I, it's hard to say for sure. I mean, I don't think if you ask most people, they actually want to eat insects and live in a pod and, you know, not have any, any sort of goals or ambitions in life to strive for. But um, I don't know if that's what the WEF... Um, uh, I, I don't know if the WF is taking any of that into account, and I don't know if uh, ultimately that's uh, that's a direction we want to bring all of society into, even by force. I mean, if I can imagine sort of a mindset among these people uh, that goes along the lines of something like this: um, we own the central banks, we own the energy suppliers. We own the ships and the pipelines that transfer that energy from point A to point B. Uh, we own the servers that you use for your day-to-day -day online interaction and business and so on. We own the big corporations that produce these goods. So if we turn off the tap, whether it's electricity or your ability to travel or your ability to eat a hamburger or not, uh, you're going to have to do uh, what we say. So I get the sense that that might be along the lines of how they think of themselves and their and their power and their ability to do things. They're the overlords. And yes, the, the overlords, serves. right. It's exactly. feudalism. Yeah. It's feudalism, and it's kind of a new techno-feudalism, right? So again, I don't want... The thing I want to refrain from, and this is what I'll close with, is I don't want to... to treat these sorts of scenarios as if they're inevitable because I don't think that they are. It goes back to what we were saying a moment ago about how if there's enough pushback, um, the powers that be do retreat and they retreat, even if it's strategic, they do retreat because uh, ultimately I think they have more to lose if things get out of hand um, than they would if, um, you know, if they, if they, ignored you know protests and opposition i think at some point even on, on their end uh they kind of see it as uh it's better for them to to give in and to retreat because ultimately we're still in power uh than to um completely ignore 
the uh, the useless eaters as they as they may see us, and to you know risk something more terrible happening. So then someone might say, well, in that case, well, don't we want to get rid of them, perhaps, and have a better world without them? Well, maybe, but I am not sure um, if that is something that will lead to, let's say, you know, the. the I don't know if that's if that's a scenario that they've planned for uh, that would sort of create a a mass calamity sort of event, right? I do think that if the pushback is strong enough against any of their policies, whether it's the Great Reset, Metaverse, Insect Burgers, <laughs> uh, rolling blackouts, or any of these sorts of things, uh, I think if the pressure is continuous, uh, it really makes their life difficult. Um, and I think that's really the way forward, along with what we were talking about before, along with uh, creating parallel structures and not relying on them for everything. We may unfortunately have to rely on them uh, for some things, at least for now, but if we can at least bypass them in some ways, uh, I think we're already doing something very important and very significant that takes away just a bit more of their power over us. So I think that's the way forward. And I think that if enough people were on board with it, it may lead to further developments that will make uh, make things entities like with the UEF. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a great point to finish up on as well, that yeah, you gotta resist, stand up and a parallel economy as difficult as that might sound right now is absolutely possible even something as uh like paypal there is already a, a parallel being or now in use actually I, I forget the name of it i can um maybe link to it in the in the description later but even something like paypal slowly but surely there are people coming in who do believe in the ideals of free speech and do believe in you know, freedom of individual thought and letting you live your life and not having to control you um, because, you know, PayPal was one of the entities that were shutting down bank accounts for people that were dissenters, essentially, from the Canadian government. So it is absolutely possible. And I, I think that's a nice positive note to end on after all the team and gloom that we've spoken about. So, uh, uh, Michael, um, thank you very much. I do really appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.